0: Welcome back to the Virtual Velo Podcast. This is episode 37. It feels like just a few weeks, actually. We, I know we did uh, episode 36 just a few weeks ago. That was the show where we interviewed Matt Smithson from MyWish. We announced the race format, the qualification, loads of other cool stuff relating to the UCI World Championships, which is taking place in October in Abu Dhabi. Of course, Co-host Christopher Schwenker, to give him his full title is in the room with me. How are we doing,
1: Chris? Things are going well, Cy. Si. It's been a, it's been kind of a uh, whirlwind of uh, deadlines and uh, recovering from jet lag and everything. I've uh, I've actually been <laughs> been working in my uh, my hobby, working a little bit too hard, but it's been exciting. I think that I've uh, you know, and we uh, our guests might appreciate this published four pieces in uh mainstream publications since i left there three in cycling weekly and one in cycling news so pretty proud of it because it's like almost impossible to get cycling esports published on these uh these platforms so um, (laughs) i'm i'm pretty proud of it
0: well i was thinking about this earlier today is you know what you told Kristen you were retiring a few few years back right when you sold the the physio practice and you
1: seem to be working
0: more than ever churning these articles out lately it's uh, it's very
1: difficult to substantiate. I got to tell you, I'm I'm about uh, jeez, th- three four figures into in the red at this point with my investment in my hobby here. But no, no, it's it's uh, you know how it is. It's it's something I would have been doing anyway, and it's a lot of fun, and you're able to you know meet nice people like like Zach, for instance. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've dropped the name there of, of our guests. I'm going, to, I'm going to get on to Zach in just a minute, but uh, yeah, look, just
0: to, just to say as well to the audience, that I know we normally do the cycling shorts. There is a lot going on in the cycling eSports space at the moment. Of course, we've had you know, the the change or the, the loss of the uh, the Zwift Hub lately, and uh, Wahoo were picking up the the lead, I guess, with the, the hardware progress, which we could argue is a good or bad thing, but I'd say that the Zwift Hub I think moved the needle in terms of the price points of what it offered, and you know, now we a lot of people have got access to the virtual shifting that didn't have before of course we've got to talk as well and acknowledge the staff reductions and the right sizing of Zwift that's gone on lately as well i think we will talk about that in a bit more detail but i think you know you and i just respect to the individuals out there and the individuals involved there's a lot of really great people that have have unfortunately lost their jobs uh with those reductions and stuff but i know we may cover that in in the future also chris i want to say just talk about the the costings and stuff and uh we're going to be meeting soon. It's just two weeks. not sure. Wait, it's two weeks until I fly over to the States. You're also going to fly to the opposite side of the States, and we're going to be meeting for the first time face to face. And in fact, we're going to record the next show, I think, from Los Angeles, right? How global
1: is that? Yeah, I'm, I'm almost worried. I'm, you know, what if I don't like you? <laughs> well, that's a
0: good point, actually. Yeah, I'd never thought about that. But you bring in your son as well, right? So if we can't converse face to face, I'm sure me and Connor have got plenty to chat, chat about.
1: Well, there are plenty of times when he probably would, would prefer to hang out with you than me. So I think I think having him there will help out a lot.
0: Yeah, it's, well, he's, he's a chief videographer as well, because I know we're going to be doing some videos and stuff while we're out there too. But uh, enough talk about you and I. I think it's time we, we get our guest in, uh, the, the main man himself. So yes, indeed, we are joined by Zach
2: Nier. Zach, welcome back to the show. Thank you guys for having me. I'm uh, really excited to be here, and we have so much to talk about right now. I'm, I'm really excited for this. Yeah, absolutely.
0: There's, there's a lot to unpack for this. So, obviously, what we're going to be talking about today is is the my my wish getting the world championships, or everything that was sort of unpacked and discovered in those uh, those couple of weeks while you guys, or those few days while you guys were out in Abu Dhabi, and also with the UCI. Zach, I just want to confirm because I did take some stick or we took some grief last time you were here, because of course we had you on post the cycling esports olympics event olympic event which you obviously took part in so just want to confirm we, we've not dragged you in here at uh you know you, you've come of your own free will right yes
2: 100 percent. yeah i love talking to you guys and i actually uh <laughs> I actually met chris over in abu dhabi so uh all good here <laughs>
0: All right, excellent. That's good to know. We don't want to we don't want to force any questions on you or force you to give any response you don't want to. I say that in jest, of course. Right. Well, first of all, Zach, let's talk about what's been going on with you lately. You've been you've also been a busy boy, traveling around. But I've also seen that you've been busy on multiple platforms, multiple events. So, what, what's going on with you?
2: Yeah, I have been very, very busy. Abu Dhabi was a big trip just a couple of weeks ago. It was a huge flight to get over there, huge flight to get home. I love my time over there and I I raced when I was over there on my whoosh and then coming back home, I've been trying to train, been trying to put in a big training block for the Zwift games coming up soon. Uh, But uh, I got sick in the past week. So I'm kind of coming off that, trying to set. There's a lot of people that I know that are are sick right now. So uh, trying to get through that, trying to not overdo it with the training, but also super motivated for the Zwift games because that is, I think, it's likely to be the biggest overall Swift race we've ever seen on the platform. Whereas Worlds was, I think, more specific and in smaller fields. I think those Swift games is is really going to be something new and and really really cool. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, so
0: uh, it's it's good to raise that. I had the the start list through today. Actually, I'm sure you've also seen the start list. So there's some uh, there's some big names there, and uh, you know, I also saw some younger riders coming through, which is which is also good. You know, and I think that opportunity of broad spectrum of riders to put himself forward to race against the like of the, the Zach Nears and other infamous members of the, the next pro cycling team or the, the next powered by insured cycle team is great. But that's also one of the reasons that I think we wanted to get you on this show. Cause of course, yes, you've raced across, across the echelon racing league recently, the Zwift Grand Prix, you've just said that you're going to be racing the Zwift games. But of course I also saw that, you, you know, and of course you've been doing the, the my wish Sunday race club, uh, pretty much week in, week out from see, But I also saw that you did the, I think it was La Vuelta over on Ruby, the sort of the indoor Vuelta as well. So tell us a little bit about that. How was that?
2: Yeah, so that was actually last year. There was a qualifier race called La Vuelta Challenge. I want to say it was in March or April of 2023. And I'd never raced on Ruby before, but I saw it. I think it came through my email inbox and... It was like win a trip to the volta if you get top five in this race and i was like well i'm pretty good on the trainer i don't know who races on ruby i'll I'll try it out for the first time i had no idea if drafting was on or off i had no idea what the course was like or anything i kind of just showed up and raced it and getting second and then six months later (laughs) flying over to madrid for this trip to the volta sponsored by ruby i mean if you get if you got top five of the race you get all expenses paid trip to Madrid for the weekend uh, it was it was for the final stage of the Vuelta and I ended up doing we had a trainer race over there that was also on Ruby and I won that race in Madrid and the winner of that race we uh my girlfriend and I we we won a trip in the VIP car during the final stage of the Vuelta wow. So we were in the VIP car driving <laughs> in front of the peloton we took so many pictures and videos and it was absolutely just insane that there were the helicopters and the tv motives and all these vip cars with people in suits i have no idea who that is but it might be the president of something that's phenomenal
0: absolutely i mean yeah i mean just to say we we talk about this uh you know wanting these cycling esports athletes to become professional i've heard madrid of course there was singapore you know, those those were both last year, in fact. And then we've had, let's like, say, Abu Dhabi recently. Y- you know, have you in this jet, jet, what's the word, jet, jet, uh,
2: lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know the word for it, but but it is, it is amazing. Uh, I've just the trips that I'm counting up in, in the past, in the past year, year and a half. I've basically traveled all the way around the world for virtual cycling events, which is amazing but i think it's it's so ironic as well because the whole point of virtual cycling. <laughs> i got into it during the pandemic when you weren't allowed to travel <laughs> now i'm traveling around the world to go do a virtual bike race
1: yeah i think it's great uh zach that you're able to get this out of virtual cycling because i know that you started on the road with uh with project echelon and you you did a lot of big uh domestic races and you've almost had you had some injuries and some other issues that prevented you from progressing and it's almost like you have forged more successful career, and it's taken you to places that you probably never could have imagined
2: yeah yeah it's it that's so true and it's it's really amazing where virtual cycling has gone. I really got into it just i was it was just really interesting it was something to do during the pandemic. I was so used to racing on the road and and traveling around the u s to do road races, and then when we didn't have that for a full year, I was just looking for something and Back in 2020 in 2021, I never thought it would grow into what it is now. And basically, you can make a career as a professional e-cyclist and travel the world for e-sport cycling. It's, It's really, it's just been amazing to see and to be a part of it. And it also just makes me wonder where we're going in the next five or 10 years. You know, I, I think that's,
0: that's you know that's why we're we're here today to discuss all those sorts of things. And Chris and I have spoke about that many many occasions. You know, of of how do we get to the point where you guys, the elite athletes, can become full time and and get the status that that you guys deserve. But of course, that's why we wanted to get you on today because you've for me have this unique perspective because like I say, I see you on that start line. We're not in the same pen, I have to add, on the My Sunday Race Club or any (laughs) other platform or race. But of course, you do race on multiple platforms, you know, and and like I say, uh, jumping week to week, day to day sometimes in these platforms. So what is your feeling on this sort of multi-cycling esports platforms, you know, moving forward? Do you think there's room enough for all, all of us? And how have you found it transitioning from one to the other on a weekly basis?
2: That's a great question. I I really in what I do for work. I'm am a freelance writer, and being freelance is is something that's really important to me. And it's it's flexible. You can kind of be your own boss, set your own schedule. And and with cycling, with esports cycling, I'm I'm kind of doing the same thing. It's like I don't I'm not exclusive to one platform or the other. I I really enjoy all of them. I enjoy the different types of racing and the different levels of competition that come up in each race and. And the timing, it works out in my schedule because a lot of the Zwift races are, are during the week, whereas the my Whoosh races are on Sunday mornings. And that doesn't work for some people, but it works for others. Whereas, whereas I am lucky enough to have a flexible schedule where I can, I can do it all. And just like with Ruby last year, I thought, why not jump on and try it? I had never done it before, but I think it's, I think esports cycling is so cool because the barrier to entry is, is relatively low compared to other sports. Whereas for other sports, you would maybe need to get the equipment and have the facilities and find a certain place with a certain group of people that you can you can jump in with. Whereas, I mean, you can have never ridden a smart trainer before, but if you can if you just jump on one, you can sign up for a Zwift race and race on Zwift. There's no (laughs) there's no barrier of entry. There's no danger like with, with real life cycling. There's no worries about crashing or anything. You can just jump in and try it out. Yeah, no, I, I think you, you're exactly right, and and I
0: always said, you know, well, I've said to Chris for a few for, you know, quite a bit now, that I think coming at the sport with that open mind. I know that the blood runs orange for some people out there, but there are multiple platforms, and you know, I still believe that having this multiple platform you know, sort of environment that we're on will drive others to, to innovate from that point as well. So, and, you know, and I, I enjoy racing. I enjoy the challenge of jumping from, from space to space. But, of course, you were both out in Abu Dhabi, you know, when we had this world format. You were the, if I remember right, you were the best US finisher at the, the last world that, that took place. So, you know, again, it's just a unique, in, insightful perspective. What are your views on wish, and, and then also, what are your views on the format? That was announced a couple of weeks ago, and if anyone wants to find out a bit more of that format, just get in here. It's episode thirty-six. Go in listen to episode thirty-six of the Virtual Velo Podcast. But yeah,
2: Zach, what are your thoughts? Yeah, that's that's a very big question. What are your thoughts on my wish? But I like it. I it's uh, <laughs> it's it's different from Zwift, but I think I think separating the racing categories between the Sunday Race Club, which is the biggest series on my wish right now, that it's most well known for. The Sunday Race Club and eSport Worlds are completely different. Yeah. The things yeah. that we learned about the form and the races and the types of power and efforts and sprinting that you're going to need at Worlds with the multi-race format is completely different from the Sunday Race Club, which is has become my specialty. I do it pretty much every single week. And most people that get on my whoosh right now, they're training and racing for the Sunday Race Club, which is a lot of threshold efforts and long. 60 to 75 minute races and there's some shorter climbs but a lot of the racing is just long steady efforts and then a 20 or 30 minute climb at the end something like that it's, it's completely different from yeah. from anything i've done on zwift maybe a zwift race like a one-off has been a race up the alp or something like that but on my whoosh it's it's pretty much every single week of these long long efforts on the trainer
1: yeah. So, you know, the, I've, we've spoken to Matt and he's, he's basically said that the, wa- they wanted the Sunday race club to just be hard, you know, just be hard. And, you know, the, the strongest guys are going to win. And, you know, I, I interviewed Lionel Vujicin this week for a piece on the, the, the annulments. I wanted to try to get down to the bottom of that. And he made a really interesting point to me. He's like, Chris, the, the races that I like to watch are the classics where it's attrition and the strong guys rise to the top you know with a little bit of luck but those are the the interesting races when you know that the the just the, the big strong guys there's four or five of them left the sunday race club is that in an hour you don't have to wait for 6 hours it's that's what it is in esports in an hour right so you know, it's, it's kind of interesting not everybody feels that way and the, and the the World Championship is not like that. It's more of a uh, an action-packed, you know, rapid-fire show. But it kind of it shows that they're thinking of both aspects.
0: Yeah, no, Chris, I, absolutely. I mean, it's an hour for Zach, Chris. It's uh, it's not an hour for me and mortals like myself. Zach, I've got another big question for you here, right? The sky parts ways, and the cycling gods yelled down that you've got to choose one event, either the Zwift Games or the Esports World Championships you got to make that choice. Which one would it be?
2: Oh, that's a good question. (laughs) I would have to say the eSport World Championships because the rainbow jersey is just absolutely legendary in cycling. No matter the discipline, if you have that rainbow jersey, it's the biggest achievement of your entire life. (laughs) I mean that—that's the response I was expecting. I'm not sure. Was it the
0: response you were expecting, Chris? You know, actually, to tell you the truth,
1: I've always held that belief. I, yeah, I you know, I, me too. You know, speculating that you know, once Swift lost the the esports world when they they announced the Swift Games, you know, we. We all thought that that was a replacement for the for the esports world, right? And that they would have to make a huge splash. And I always felt that I don't I don't necessarily think that that's the mind frame that the the top tier athletes have. You know, the, the rainbow bands mean something to people in the cycling world. They just do, even if it's a the, the virtual bands. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, guys, before we get into these interviews with Michael Rogers and David Laporte, there's two more topics I
0: want to cover with you guys. First of all, Zach, I've got to ask you about Zwift Academy because. Anyone who's into Zwift and watch people on on Twitch and stream their sessions would have seen the effort and the work that you'd put into the the Zwift Academy. Um, and then I think we also saw your your response, you know, to to not making it through to Zwift Academy this time. Do you want to give us just a bit of background? You know, what you know, the effort that you put in. How are you feeling about it
2: now? Yeah, the Zwift Academy was was really tough this year. I really tried for it the last couple of years, like scheduling it into my training and and trying to peak for those workouts and those power tests, because I really, really wanted to make the finals just to have a chance at getting a pro conct, which is something I've, I've never had in my life and getting the opportunity to race in Europe. Just, it sounds amazing. And I think Zwift Academy, it started as this idea of taking people from indoor training from Zwift and giving them that opportunity that they wouldn't have at home. Someone like I know there's been a lot of finalists from Australia. There's only been a handful from North America, but the North American road racing scene is is very, very quiet. It's not completely dead, but compared to Europe in, in Europe, there's so many more races and so many more supports as junior teams and U twenty three development teams. And I think that Swift Academy honestly needs a rebranding because I don't think it's Swift Academy anymore. I feel like it's it's Canyon's Ram Academy and it's Alpeson Academy. It's it's, they're looking for pro riders to fit into those teams, which I can't, I can't blame them. I think, I think that's a great idea. I think it's a great way to find some of the strongest, most talented riders in the world, but to say it's the Zwift Academy and then to have a handful of finalists that have almost never raced on Zwift and they don't ride on Zwift on a yeah. regular basis. And all the Zwifters in the world have no idea who these names are. It's, it's very uh, it's very upsetting to all the, the Zwifters that train really hard on this, and they think they have a chance because it's Zwift Academy, but when in reality, it's just finding some young, super strong people to give a pro contract to.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting take, Zach, because when you think of the one of the most famous men who went through the Zwift Academy, you think of Jay Vine. And I've, I've interviewed Jay, and I actually interviewed his, his wife, Bree, also. And she, as, as time went on and, and he started to really get a lot of traction on the, on the pro tour and become really successful, there was kind of like a shift from I'm a Zwift Academy winner to I'm somebody who got a pro contract through Zwift, right? I'm not a Zwifter anymore. I'm a pro racer that got his chance through Zwift. So it's kind of like, you know, I can see that distinction that, that, y- that you've made there. And, you know, I, I, I got to tell you, um, just on a personal level, I, I felt I felt terrible because after seeing your numbers. No, I think, you know, for me, Zach,
0: I watched some of your workouts and what I saw was I saw the community all of a sudden. I just saw this, this chat gathering through Zwift Academy. and It's almost like the story for me that I was seeing in, in the social was this narrative of the effort and the work that people, you know, and the heart that you were putting into these workouts and these sessions with, with Zwift Academy. I've always been a big fan of the Zwift Academy and, and, and what it's been about. And I must admit, when I saw the three, and, and I'm going to focus on the, the gents in particular, not because you're a male sat in front of me, Zach, but because if I look at the history of the three ladies, I actually, Maddie, one of the girls who's got through, is coached by uh, Thierry from Jura Sport, who's a, who's a coach well-respected. All three girls have been on Zwift. They've got some good history on Zwift. Not necessarily racing at a high level, but they've been on a long time. I cannot say the same for the guys. You know, when I look at the history and I look at where they're from and I look at how long they spent on Zwift, it's put a question mark. there's like a bit of a gray mark there for it now. And I'm starting to question whether you're right, you know, whether this is they're just utilizing it as a vehicle to get them onto the program. Maybe they're already on the program in some way or already being looked at in some way. I don't know. I'm speculating there, but it it's just got that little mark. But, you know, just to finish, I might say the way the community got behind what you were doing i think it was very inspirational you know for me i, I find it motivating day out you know day in day out week and seeing the videos and and how hard you were working to come and get my sessions bloody done because there were days when you know you don't want to get on but seeing someone like you do that you know in the public eye day in day out was was really inspiring so really, really appreciate that just on a personal level
2: Zach. thank you i i really appreciate that and and it was it was really fun sharing my workouts and and doing those live streams on YouTube. And I've never had a response like that before to my videos. It was, it was really interesting to, to have all of a sudden thousands of people looking at my Zwift workouts because streaming and social media is not something that I'm a professional at or an expert at. And then all of a sudden have all these eyes on me doing, doing these workouts and, and it was really fun to share them. And, and, to have that extra motivation too from all knowing all these people were watching and supporting me and rooting for me I I I really wanted to make it but um, yeah. I'll definitely try again next year so Yeah
0: well we we need another reason just to see you know be inspired by those workouts again but but talking about Monumental uh, workouts and, and numbers. You have obviously went out to Abu Dhabi and you did one of the, the My Sunday Race Clubs in there, but also there's a couple of other athletes who've been out in Abu Dhabi recently because, of course, they got annulled originally um, from the Sunday Race Clubs. And, of course, we're talking about Vuyasan Kaminsky, Ollie Jones, and Columbia, I think, who was the, the female athlete who went out there. Uh, Chris, have you, have you got any updates, first of all, on, on what's happened with those athletes?
1: Well, first of all, when when it went down, Zach and I were there. And I recall having a conversation with him at the final day at the press conference when uh, we were going to, you know, get the, the details about the world championships. And I, I said to Zach, this will crush cycling esports if any of those guys are not able to substantiate their results. Yeah. Right. And I think that at that point, and Zach, you can you can tell me whether you felt the same way. Um, you know, people were kind of skeptical. You know, what is the reason why they're doing this? Are they are they doing it because they want them to fail? Do they, they you know they're all from the same team? You know, Ali Jones, Kaminsky, and Vuyasin, they are all from the same team. You know, are they making too much money that they want to take back some of their money that they want to not be divvying out to these guys? I don't know whether whether you felt the same way, but there was there was a lot of uh, a lot of question marks around it. So. Kaminsky and, and Vuyasin were, were flown over to Abu Dhabi. They were there last week. So basically, the Sunday Race Club race on the 21st. It turns out that it happened to be a super hard race. I'm sure, Zach, I'm sure that you know there was a, there was a lot of stuff going on. There was a lot of chasing. There was a lot of uh, bridging, bridging back. There was a, a, a ton of uh, attrition. And Kaminsky and, and Vuyasin rose to the top. It wasn't necessarily their average power because they had done the same power before, but it was the re- repeatability, like the fact that they could do two minutes, you know, at, at crazy wattages, and then just and then recover and then do it again and recover it and do it again. And the issue, as far as Matt Smithson, who is is the race director at My Wish, said to me, is that we've never seen this before because pros never have to do that, right? They never have to do repeated two minute efforts, you know, back to back to back to back. So there was nothing that that. We could point to that that could say that that a cyclist could actually do this, right? So that was you know the main thing. It wasn't necessarily there the entire critical power curve. It was much more the recovery. So they flew them out there. They set them up with a driver. They had a personal driver drove them around, and they 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 eventually got into the headquarters. And the the way that Matt described it to me was that it was it was all business in the beginning, but once they started getting going, it you know they were making the numbers and. and Things were headed in the right direction. So, um, Zach, I know that this is really interesting to you, uh, being the, the the data person that you are. So, I'm going to read off these numbers. Is, do you do you want to hear this? Is this interesting to people? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely interesting to me. Okay, all right. So, uh, Leo did 8.8 for two minutes, 8.1 for three minutes, and 6.5 for 12 minutes, which is fairly fairly solid, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> but but Zach will tell you that that's not better than, you know, Matthew Vanderpoel, you know, has done in some of the huge races that, that he's won. Yeah. Right. Michael Kaminsky. Also, he had he actually won the race that day. He did eight and a half for two minutes, seven and a half for three and six point two for twelve. So I think that I think the point that, that they were trying to make is that they would be solid riders in the pro peloton. Like Zach, would you, would you agree with that, with those numbers, if it was just strictly based upon those numbers? Based on the numbers, yes. What Matt said to me and that what, what kind of um, really stuck with me was that we did everything that we could to put these guys in the best position to succeed because my greatest fear was that they would fail. And he, you know, if, and I think that a lot of people look at what they're doing over there and they say, you know, is it, is it good for cycling esports? sports Is it not good for e- cycling esports? sports um, Zach, I'm going to ask you, when you were there, did you get the impression that, that they were sincerely trying to move the sport forward?
2: Yes. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, I am all for this extra testing and everything. It's, it's something that I don't know if it's a hundred percent necessary to say it like that, but I, I think it's it's a huge positive, I think especially because my wish I mean they put the bill on all this stuff. It's the athletes basically show up and they have a few days in Abu Dhabi for testing and racing and and then it's all good if they can do the numbers and I think that's that's something that's it's great for eSports cycling. It's just it's just an extra barrier of verification. It's just another way to make sure people are as legitimate as possible to put them on on my woosh trainers and do it in the my woosh office and just watch them do the numbers i think is a whole different level from even with zoom calls and everything that you can do at home there's especially people that are tech experts there's sure a million different ways that you can mess with stuff at home but when they're doing it in person in the office on on my woosh equipment there's really no question about it that They can do the numbers.
1: Yeah. So one of the questions is about the money. You were fortunate enough to propel up to the podium, which was a a huge payout for you, right? Basically, relatively. So what they decided to do was they reinstated those guys. So it, it dropped you back down to fifth, I guess. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But they, but you kept the money and then they paid out those guys too, the The amount that they would have won, which for first place, I think is like around $2,700. And second place is like $2,100. So by doing what they did, then that, I that only incurred the expense of, you know, having them there, but they also had to pay out double. So the, uh, that argument, I guess, is, uh, is kind of like they're certainly not trying to spend less money. They really seem to be motivated to, be able to show the world that these athletes are moving the bar, right? They're putting out numbers that that makes them stand out as you know indoor specialists.
0: Yeah, no, I mean you know, those numbers are, are you know really fantastic and, and phenomenal numbers, and I think it's really good that that my wish are putting the resources behind to to dig a little bit deeper with these athletes. I guess the question for me is, you know, how do we make that more accessible as that that top level grows? You know, because how, how do you do that with you know, if I've just seen the start list, as we've said for the the Swift Games, for example, there's over a hundred athletes just in the males, and, and and the same again with the ladies. You know, how do you make that repeatable with all of the the top level elite athletes? I guess, um, you know, but I guess that you know it comes back to that live events. The more live events, the live venues where we could, you know. In fact, I remember that when Matt came, Matt Smithson came up on. Episode thirty six, he did said to us, you know, because Zach, you did your Sunday race club at the My Wish facilities, and he, he, I think he said, you know, I saw Zach walk in the room, and I thought, there's no way Zach can put out these numbers, and yet you, you know, you did exactly the same in there. But I think, you know, what what he also said is these. Top level cycling esports athletes like Zach and Vuyasan and Kaminsky and Ollie Jones and the Bruins in the world. You know, I'm in some of the, the coaching group of some of these top esports athletes. They are training in a very different way. They're training to repeat these efforts. I remember that course, that was on the Wolgon course. I raced it that week too. And I remember, you know, because that was very different from what we normally see in the Sunday Race Club, which is normally, like you say, you race for. It's probably 40 minutes for Zach. For me, it's normally a race for now an and then you hit this 20-minute climb or 10-minute climb for Zach or something like that. So it was a very different course. But you know, I guess that's, that's what you've been training for, Zach, right? These continuous, repeated
2: efforts. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's something that I'm still experimenting with is the type of training that is best for these races and is best for these efforts. There are a number of, of riders that still do the big, big volume, like 20 to 30-hour weeks. And there's a lot of guys that do eight or 10 or 12 hours and they're, they kind of end up at the same level. And it's so hard to know because some athletes are older, some are younger, some have a different training history, like some used to do high volume, but now they do low volume and that seems to work for them. And I'm kind of experimenting with stuff all the time to see what works best for me. But it is, it is really tricky to know what, what is best for this type of training, because I think. This level of e cycling, every, every single week, the highest level of e cycling keeps getting higher. It's like a tenth of a percent higher every single week. So every single week, there's guys setting new power records for e cycling. Like no one on a smart trainer on this power for five minutes. But then that happened a couple years ago, and then it happened again, and then it happened again, and then it happened again. And you test these guys, and you verify these guys, and it's all – it's all legitimate. It's just, it's the best guys keep getting better. So the bar keeps getting higher and it's, it's so hard to know. I mean, obviously we haven't reached the limit, but it's hard to know what training is best because there's so many guys that are at the top level now that have completely different backgrounds and some ride outside all the time and then race on the trainer. And then some guys do eight hours on the trainer a week and they're (laughs) world-class esport athletes.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, if you, if you put the sort of, the, I guess, the evolution of where we hope cycling esports is going to go in in a clock, we're still in only the, what, the, the one millisecond side. I even remember when the 100 meter sprint was less, you know, was more than 10 seconds. So that's all I am. So let, let's keep moving the bar forward. I think we've got to move on to my wish you know, and in, in the announcement. In particular, I want to focus on these interviews today because you were both out there in Abu Dhabi. Uh, I think Zach, you had a chance to speak to both Michael Rogers, to David Lapartia as well. I am right at the end. Don't let me forget. I need to ask you about riding with Tade Pogacar as well, right? Because you, you wrote, the, in fact, let's ask you now, you rode with Tade Pogacar while you were out in the Middle East as well,
2: right? We we were in a big group of probably 120 people, <laughs> but yes, I was in that group.
1: <laughs> well, that was the first of the uh, three group rides that we did where zach wasn't getting attacked by uh, by all the other <laughs> cycling journalists that were there it ended it, it, it was like the the classic get a couple cyclists together it was just guys were just attacking each other and you know it, it was it was really crazy it was funny but i can uh i can vouch for uh, the fact that zach can ride his bike uh, very fast i hope you weren't half wheeling zach were you chris You know, the the first day, it was the, I made it to the final group. There was like four or five of us out of the 20 something journals. And I thought that I was doing really well. And then Zach turned to um, the other, this other uh, Danish guy that was there with us, who was obviously super strong. And they both said, we weren't riding hard. Like, (laughs) oh, thanks. That's like like the classic (laughs) thing to say. But I think that they were actually were, it's genuine that they actually were, yeah, they weren't riding hard. Only, oh, yeah, only I was.
2: We were working pretty hard. That that crosswind out there in the desert was was pretty wild.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That was a, it. Was a fun time. It was a fun time to be able to get out there and and uh, you know actually it's a good time to ask you. You know, we got a, the one of the reasons for for going out there, and it was kind of obvious after we, we've got you know taken to all these different places is to be able to report on the cycling infrastructure that is you know, being invested in, in the UAE. What, what was your impression of that? Do you get the idea that it's a sincere effort to improve the fitness of, of the citizens of the UAE to, to give them access to the health and fitness options?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. It's, it's one that I've thought about a lot since I was there because I think the cycling infrastructure they have there is amazing for recreational riders but I think for people that are more serious about road riding and, and like to do longer rides or longer training, three or four hours, I think it's really, really, really hard. Because if there's these spots that we rode either on like a cycle track, like a closed cycle track, or even like one of the islands that we went to. The whole island basically was a cycle track with no cars, no intersections or anything. But if you don't live right next to one of those, you probably have to drive there. And to get between them, there wasn't a lot of, there weren't a lot of options. It it sounded like it was mostly highways and interstates connecting the different parts of Abu Dhabi. So if you wanted to ride between the tracks or something like that, it, it sounded like it wasn't as welcoming as it would be in places like, I don't even know, places in Europe, maybe Germany or the Netherlands or or places like that that are more used to having bikes on the roads next to cars out there. It sounded like from the people that lived in Abu Dhabi or that live in Abu Dhabi right now, they said that cycling is so new out there that drivers really don't know how to interact with cyclists that they give you a lot of room over there, but they're just not used to it. They're not used to even in the U S in places like California, there's weekly group rides with a hundred people that ride on a road with cars and the cars are used to it. But in Abu Dhabi, it sounds like it's like a cycle track here and then 10 kilometers away, a cycle track here, and then 10 kilometers away, a cycle track here, so to do longer road rides would be pretty tough. But if you're a recreational cyclist that loves doing laps of a private cycle track with no cars, it's like the best place ever.
1: (laughs) Which I think is really the point. You know, if they're trying to be the fittest nation in the world, then that's what they're trying to cater to, which which, uh, it certainly makes sense, right? Um, you know, one thing that I, since doing some research, which uh, I, I think you guys will, will consider uh, pretty interesting, is that they have a pretty thriving um, amateur racing scene. They have like, like 50 to 75 events during their very shortened season for racing. And they, from what I understand after speaking to people is they get a pretty good showing, like 100 to, 100 to 150 guys per race. And there's some pretty hot racing, so I always like to take the pulse of the cycling scene in in a nation by how strong their their amateur ranks are, right? And it seems like they're it's building, and there's some real interest to uh, for some grassroots racing there, which I didn't think that there was. You know, amateur racing in Abu Dhabi when I was there, it doesn't seem like it would happen, but it definitely did. I don't know, so si, should, should we move on to the uh, to the interviews, to the clips, set the scene for this?
0: Yeah, ab- uh, absolutely. So, yeah, well, obviously, while you're out there, you interview Michael Rogers and David Pontier. So, I'm really interesting. This, I'm just going to warn the listeners that this is also going to be a test of Chris's technical ability today, because this is the first time that we're going to be playing clips in the show. So we've lined the clips up. So hopefully these go pretty well. But I know you interviewed Michael Rogers, first of all. Uh, So do you want to give us some uh, context to this first question that you asked uh, Mr. Rogers, Chris? Well, first
1: of all, this was after the big press conference, right, Zach, that we had, right? We had the the big big press conference where we, we got the announcement and... Then we were told that we had five minutes to interview each one of these guys in like like a rapid fire and they were like like really sticking to this really strict schedule. So anyway, so I, I got to, to meet up with, with Michael Rogers, who you may or may not know is the head of innovation and esports for the UCI. The first question that I asked them is, you know, you're obviously very famous for, you know, everything you've done on the road, four-time Olympian, you know, and you also, he was also creator, part owner of Pro, which is a virtual mm. cycling platform. Now you're the head of uh, eSports for the UCI. How much of your job is actually entails eSports? And this is what he said.
3: The road one's a big one. That's a, that's a big daddy. A little bit more time to focus on, on the technology side and obviously the eSports side of it as well. So I would say... I'd be pretty split I would say uh, you know maybe the slight I'd say 60-40 60 on materials
1: 40, 40
3: on these
1: Well, that's, a, that's yeah, actually yeah. a lot yeah. more than I anticipated you would say yeah, well, yeah, that, yeah. that's great to hear yeah
0: well, that's a, a really interesting, I guess the only question for me, 60-40. Um, I mean, first of all, is, is he the man responsible now that I've got to straighten my break hoods up to straight rather than turn him in? He, I, th- I think he is because it's, it's innovation and esports, right? So he's the guy that, that does all that. But I, I mean, that surprised me. The only question, Chris and Zach, for me is how much is that is a you know political response given where he is and the audience that he's got in front of him? Or was that a sincere response? How did you feel,
1: Chris? You were stood in front of the guy. You know, I mentioned in the last podcast that I really enjoyed the interview with, with uh, Michael Rogers because I, I got a sense that he was sincerely had a vision. And, you know, I expected him to say, oh, you know, when I'm not like measuring sock heights, then, uh, then I'm a, I, I, get in, I get involved with eSports every now and then. From everything that I could sense by being around him, it, it's impossible to tell whether what he was saying it was a political answer. And I think the, the next person that I interviewed, you could probably tell the difference because that's a that's a big part of his job, and you, you'll probably yeah. notice that when we get to that. Um, I, I felt the the opposite with 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 Michael Rogers and, and other people that I've spoken to who um, have uh, you know worked fairly closely with him say that he is uh, sincerely interested in, in progressing the sport and getting it to really to places that you and I and and Zach, of course, wanted to be.
0: Yeah, Zach, obviously you met, I'm, I'm guessing you also met some of the representatives from the UCI, but I also, because I can see the jumper that you're wearing now is the Olympic, Olympic jumper, for example. But you obviously, I know, spoke to some of the individuals from the UCI at that event in Singapore too. So wh- what is your feeling from the UCI and the sincerity towards you know, the commitment of of time and resources to esports.
2: Yeah, I met, I'm trying to remember who I met in Singapore. It was a few UCI representatives, but that one was definitely a different situation for me because I was only there as an athlete. Whereas for the MyWoosh event in Abu Dhabi, I was all part an athlete, but mostly I was there as a journalist, as someone to experience the week and talk to these people and interview these people. So in Singapore... I didn't talk to as many people about maybe these more professional topics or things like that, but everyone from the UCI, they seem very invested in it. And I think it just shows to having people on the ground at these events is is a, a very good step for eSport. I think they saw they saw, obviously, the event in Singapore and how that went. And I think they were there in Abu Dhabi to kind of plan out the same thing for having Worlds in person in October in Abu Dhabi. I think having those live in-person events is obviously very, very important to the UCI. And I think they're trying to learn as they can in a short time basically before they have another huge in-person event coming up in Abu Dhabi. And I think having them on the ground working with MyWUSH and, and seeing the facilities and the trainer and meeting these people is, is a huge step towards towards progress in, in everything for eSports.
0: No, I think I think that's really interesting. So I think that leads quite nicely onto the next question. Obviously the first UCI World eSports was back in 2020. We're now in 2024. In some respects we've seen development, but we're also still struggling to find that recognition as as athletes. Chris, I know you asked him then, do do the UCI see this as a unique discipline and what challenges stand in the way of this becoming a standalone sport, right?
3: I do. I, I, I see it as very much an independent, um, its own independent discipline. But let's maybe go back to twenty twenty uh, because the, I think esports became a very, um, I would say, luck <laughs> to have esports during the pandemic. Ah, yes. Now, uh, because the world of sport shut down literally mm. from one week to the next, and, and cycling was one of the few sports to be able to have—not the sport that we we're traditionally used to—but the stars could still compete, and they were televised. I think there was the you know, Tour de Swift and and all those great things. Oh, right, right uh, the Tour de
1: France and the Tour de France, the virtual Tour de France, yes, yeah. the Tour de
3: France. So, I mean, the speed that that you know, uh, the sport was able to, you know, to 180 degree or 360 <laughs> and and put on competitions. I think we were in, in a very privileged position as a sport to do that. Fast forward, I think, a couple of years where the pandemic is finished. I think now where we've seen esports kind of develop into... A more up-and-coming talent. You know, we've seen Jake Byrne go through. Uh, we talked about Michael being on, on stage. So I think there, and, and, and likewise with, with the ladies. Um, I, I see it as um, its own its own discipline because I think it speaks another language to younger generations. Um, I, I, I strongly feel that Europe is a little bit behind, kind of compared to Asian countries where they might not have this space. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I see it as its own. You know, I, I don't see it as rogue. One point one. You know, I see it as now esports. That kind of athlete is coming through. Whether he or she goes to another path, goes to the road, goes to mountain bike, goes to track, I see it as a discipline that's a, another generation of, of cyclists. It's like another language. So you you would choose to elevate indoor specialists? I would. It would. I would. Yeah, because I think they're physiologically different. Yeah. The, the road riders are used to riding for hours. These guys and girls ride for 15 minutes and they go fast. I agree.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean, first of all, he's already mentioned the physiological differences that we discussed earlier in the show there, I guess. But first of all, I mean, it's nice that he you know, he recognizes it as an individual sport, you know, moving in that direction. For me, I guess, it's interesting to use the word luck. and I, I kind of agree with him. You. you know, we had that really big boost, you know, when when we had that pandemic. I guess the interesting thing is we did have quite a few pros on the platform then. A lot of those, the vast majority, let's be honest, have, have gone off and don't really compete in that space. There's one or two names that we, we could pick out there. But I guess for me, the important thing and the, the thing that I've said, Chris, and I think we have discussed multiple occasions, um, is that access is the accessibility. Not just for nations, you know, and and if we look at where the worlds are going in the next couple of years, again, there's another question there. But I think accessibility to cycling in whichever format esports allows to do that. And also the youngsters, because as I've said before, my kids play computer games. It is a struggle to get them out. You know, I've been out with them on on today. It's freezing in the UK right now, but we managed to get them out. But I can tell you, it's not always that easy to get them out there. But, you know, my daughter's bike is sat next to me on this turbo, as I spoke about before. I do think there's that access- accessibility, not just from nations, but also finding a way of attracting a younger audience into the sport. And I, and I have a feeling that's also going to come back later on, Chris, with uh, Le Partien, right?
1: You know, I, I went through and listened to the the major press conference, Zach, with all the, the dignitaries up on stage. and. The sense that I got that was the overriding theme after listening to it again, you know, was that accessibility, accessibility. They they kept on mentioning accessibility. The uh, the head of the Abu Dhabi Sports Council said our our goal was accessibility for all of our citizens to, to health and fitness options. The head of the Abu Dhabi Sports Club is that we were, were giving accessibility to the younger generation because we want to find the first tour de france rider from the UAE and we want to be able to offer options to female members of our population through cycling esports because they may not feel comfortable riding with men and also the the fact that 20% of the riders in the, the esports world championships are going to be selected through the My Wish public pathway. And that all is because they want to give it accessibility to as many people as possible from emerging nations, from people that don't, you know, perhaps weren't able to make the qualifiers. And accessibility came up so many different times. You know, I think, it, you know, that's one of the major advantages of cycling esports and virtual cycling.
2: I agree. I, I think that's something that I've really noticed in the, in the past few years as the, American road racing scene has has died down is that these races are so hard to run and it's so expensive and it's so hard to find the right the right people and the right logistics to make group rides happen, to make bike races happen, road races and crits, and and every day of the week you can jump on a smart trainer and race. It doesn't matter if you've never raced before, it doesn't matter if you've been racing for 40 years, anyone anywhere can jump on a smart trainer. Race at any time of day. You even if you work the night shift, it doesn't matter. There's races twenty four seven. It's it's really amazing. It's to have that that pathway for so many people to to get into cycling, to get into competitive sport and and esports cycling, or just to do it for fun. I know there's so many people ride on the platforms and just do group rides. There's so many people that don't live in a place that cycling is very popular, or maybe cycling isn't even that safe. Maybe they live in the middle of a big city, but you can jump on Zwift and do a group ride with 200 people at any time yeah no you know right. the the accessibility the immediate
0: thing just popped around I think you brushed upon it there Chris was was female cycling you know and, and ladies in cycling you know that does you know we spoke about it with Ashley Mormon Passio didn't we on the podcast we did with Ashley there and you know the the pathway you know the explosion that we've seen not just in the media but generally in the sport of cycling with with you know on Zwift and many other platforms is has been immense so Yeah, it's good. All right, Chris, I know next you asked him about, you know, uh, Michael, what is your short and long-term vision for cycling eSports and what will the UCI do to ensure
3: we meet those goals? I, short term, I think that we will start to, strategy will start to layer into the sport. Ah, thank you, Mina. Um... I say that because right now, it's still very much, we live in a world of what's per kilo, and that's a very important metric, but it has this tendency for the same athletes to, they're just the strongest. Um, I see in the short to medium term, I I see more strategy coming, and that's what we've tried to step towards for example, I'm really curious to see what happens on, on the... Yeah,
1: the the, the 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 new world championship format is very interesting.
3: Yeah, because are you going to have athletes going on their own to the sprint, or they have a whole team lead up? It's,
1: it's very intriguing. And,
3: and this is why we did it, because we believe more strategy needs to come into it, because otherwise the strongest riders will just win all the time. But if you are able to... Maybe outsmarts the strongest because you're more strategic and vice versa. I think that creates a really interesting um, perspective. Now, I think of it as... I, I, I'd like to make the example of a weightlifter. There's not much strategy in weightlifting. Mm-hmm. There's technique. okay, But at the end of the day, strongest guy, girl wins. On the other side of the graph, you have chess which has got unlimited strategy, okay, but not much physical.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Interesting. I'm not sure he answered the question as much as such there, Zach, but yeah, what, what do you think, Zach, about what he said there about the strategy versus the the watts per kilogram?
2: I think that's a really interesting question and discussion that not many people have in cycling, but I think that I really like the the inclusion of strategy in these top-level races, I think, to have it 100% watts per kilo base would be, it won't be much much of a sport then. It would, it would be just, it, every race would be a time trial, and I don't think anyone wants that. I think there needs to be some element of strategy, but not too much, I think. um I don't know if any, any of the audio clips touch on this, but I think the gamification in esport is, is another interesting topic, and I think there's some platforms that have used a lot of gamification and and that scares a lot of people away, especially more traditional cyclists. But I think the strategy is is a really good inclusion because I think it, it makes it much more interesting and more dynamic. You can have more opportunities for more riders and different winners. Cause if it's just a Watts per kilo contest, it's going to be the same top five every single time. And I I don't think people want that in esports cycling.
0: I think that's a really interesting point you've got there because when he was talking about strategy, actually the word gamification popped into my head because that's the word that you know the the orange swifters that use all the time increased gamification and you know the the power ups and things like that and i think i'm trying to think chris who we spoke to when we said that you don't know, gamification for the sake of gamification you know adding you know, sort of game-like features in just to, you know, which is great in some context, you know, being able to throw throw things or hit, you know, magic things on the floor that make you go faster. But I I don't know. I need a little bit of time to think there of, would I prefer to be able to make strategic decisions just tactically or what's the difference between that and gamification about when I use a power-up or, you know, versus when I make my break? I don't know. Chris, what do you think?
1: Well, he did go on to say there was another part of the answer to that question is that on his own platform they did a lot of analytics of well, what's what drives the users and what engages the users. Um, so, like I know that they're they're working on that in the background, trying to figure out different ways to to engage the normal cycling esports uh, user and get more people involved. I didn't ask a question about gamification, you know, th- thinking back, I probably should have, but I was actually wondering how, what kind of a response I would get to this next question, which was, what factors influenced your decision to move from long time partners with to Mywish? And this is what he said.
3: Long term, we were very much looking at a platform that was very focused on the racing part of it.
2: I mean, we, were, we were very
3: excited, particularly what my wish is doing over the long term. We talked about strategy element. We're also looking for a platform to engage with the national federations, because we, we see it as a kind multiple, multiple level, and, and we we are an international federation as national federations, as our members. My wish was very, very flexible about what they could offer the, the national federation. Matt and his team are, you know, uh, working, making customs, allowing them to put their own advertising in, allowing them to you know, you know, to be a lot more flexible. You know, their partners are uh, all part of what my wood can offer the national federation and, and give them a the platform to also expand the sports and they should. And the beauty of that was, also, longer term. I think a lot of our national federations, the feedback that we provide them, you know, on this year-to-year basis because so we are a little bit in the infancy of opportunities. It was really hard for them I think, to commit resources within international
2: national
3: to be able to take these maybe around for school. And coach, properly not ready track. So on that short-term basis, I think it's very difficult for the national federation to think like about the like stuff. Allocate resources, but over a longer time uh, deal that we've done now for three years, I think it starts to be a
2: random.
3: Great, great.
0: Just to say that, I, I have to apologize for the quality of that clip, but Chris, they were playing Coldplay in the background, and obviously we can't play commercial music on the podcast or YouTube or anyway, like that. so. I had to work some magic to try and remove the background audio in that clip. So hopefully everyone got that. We will have to maybe just uh, annotate that
1: somewhere in in the description too. Yes, it was kind of funny when the music came on. So I found out afterwards that Matt had prompted uh, roger and said listen chris is the only guy you know focuses strictly on cycling esports five minutes is not going to be enough for him so i was they, they, they turned <laughs> on the mu- yeah they, they turned on the music they were trying to like push me out the door so he and i like kind of tried to like move into a corner and, and continue talking so it, it was a. Uh, I was just like i was like so stressed out i was like oh geez i finally got the guy i want to talk to and now, now they're doing this to me But anyway so there were many very telling statements that he made. And you kind of did, it was kind of cut off in the beginning when he, when I asked him, you know, why did you switch? And he, he immediately said, long term. We, we need somebody who has a long term vision for cycling esports. Very telling for me how it reflects upon the, the other bidders for the tender, right? The other thing that he said to me was, we were looking for a platform to engage with the national federations. Okay. That seems like something that you would want them to do, right? And then allowing the federations to be a lot more flexible and work as partners with My Wish. So it kind of, without actually coming out and saying it, he's he's basically letting you know what things he wanted to be changed. In the past and why he's going towards the future
0: yeah which absolutely is, is interesting considering i don't think they were my wish particularly talking to any of the national governing bodies before in fact chris didn't you do an introduction to the team for usac for example
1: well just because they weren't in, t- in touch with usac doesn't mean they were in touch with other national other national governing true, bodies true. yeah you know i did i did make that a uh, connection there and I, and I found out this week through sources that they, they've had some pretty meaningful conversations about a uh, Qualifying series and other things like that. But no, I've also um, been in contact. I, I interviewed the head of esports for for Danish uh, cycling and also for uh, Brazil and France. And they've been in talks with MyWish for, for quite a while now. So they have somebody whose main job is to work as a liaison between the national governing bodies. So yeah, they they seem to be very much prioritizing that. And what they said that they will do is you will totally re- rebrand our game so that it reflects your logos you know everything the, the jerseys will do, we'll do whatever you need to do to make it as appealing for you to to get on get your national governing body and and your your you know your racers over to us
0: I, I guess if you're using a gaming engine that's used pretty broadly it's probably a lot quicker and faster that you could do those kind of uh, personalizations all right we've asked uh, zach about his perspective on multi-platform model but i also think you asked uh, michael rogers so let's play that clip
1: what is your uh, perspective on the multi-platform model, and it, does it pave the way for an international calendar and a ranking system? Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we are we are developing now. Yeah, we
3: will we, we'll get there eventually. It's it's so. What what's very interesting here is the the, the platforms are in essence commercial entities. Uh, and and of course they have their their commercial interests, you know, and, and a lot of data. And the UCI plays a role of of uh, I think uh, uh, the ability to bring people to the table to talk to talk about standards. Because if you you know com- compete on on platform A today, you want some kind of um, absolutely. Similarity in platform B, C, and D. Um, so, we're and, and we say again, our national federations kind of at the, at the center of this because that's that's the pathway that we work for. We we want kids to develop. Let me rephrase: We want national federations to provide solutions down, so kids can go up. Right. You know, through uh, you know through through the ranks and go to the Olympic Games and, and, and go on to bigger and greater things. So. Um, Stance I think, across platforms and, 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 um, and athletic integrity. I think we've still got a lot of work to do there you know, to ensure that the performance is real.
0: What's really interesting to me, and, and I don't know if it's just because he's in front of you, Chris, because obviously you're quite knowledgeable when it comes to and eSports. And, you know, I know Matt, Matt Smithson said to me that in terms of the journalists in the room, you and Zach were, you know, the most knowledgeable people in the room when it came to and eSports there, that he clearly has a vision. But he, he he clearly hasn't been used to articulating that vision on a frequent basis. You know, maybe if I if I did ask him about you know the the brake hoods being turned or not, he he could maybe articulate a little bit better about the response to that. But you know, I think if you've got the time, he can obviously dig a bit deeper. He clearly has thought about it, but it's just not flowing in the same way that it, it probably does with the, with the road stuff so far. But Zach, it was interesting again. You know, he raised up some points and he came back again talking about that. Vehicle to bring the youth through in a way as well, right?
2: Yeah i i like I like the message that he came through with there, but the one word that stuck out to me was the standardization, and that's something that that I've been thinking about a lot. And I know Chris has written about standardization recently, and and mostly with trainers. And the deeper I've dived into the data, the more frustrating it is because there's uh, we we just need a a trainer standard, a standard specification, because the level that racing is at now and the amount of money on offer is that people are making full-time livings from prize money in esports cycling. And if they have a trainer that reads two or 3% high, that's the difference between 10th and winning. And that's, and, and it's, it's, it's all within the rules right now, which is, it's such a gray area because no one's doing anything wrong, but the trainer the trainers just aren't up to standard. It's just, it, it, it could be the same trainer between multiple different riders, the same same trainer just straight out of the box. And if it, if it reads a little high, they just get a little extra boost. And, and that's the difference between some of the top guys and winning every single race. And, and I think that's, my hope is that the UCI is on top of that as soon as possible, especially with worlds and everything coming up and, and the amount of money in these races, it's, it's, it's a big topic to me. It's it's one of the biggest, I think, in esports cycling. No, I,
0: I could imagine. Chris, I know that's your next question, in fact, to, to Michael Rogers and his response to digital doping. It's really interesting to me, though. You've put an article out, Chris, on this exact topic recently. I think it was related to the, the Purdue's, Purdue's uh, the research uh, with the engineering team over there and what they've been doing with the turbo trainer accuracy and so on. But uh, Why don't we go ahead, play the play the clip, and then we'll have a chat about it afterwards.
1: Right. Well, that's that's uh, leads me into the next question. Yeah. How do you and the UCI respond to the concerns about digital doping and the perceived culture of cheating and cycling eSports?
3: Um, we are, yeah, we're we're quite advanced in homologation now. Um, so for, for so for home trainers, mm-hmm. uh, we've got. A, hopefully, I can announce something in the next two three months.
1: Really. Yeah. So standardization yeah. of trainers across companies, across manufacturers. Well,
3: everyone, everyone calculates their metrics differently
1: yeah. at PAL. But we
3: have a very. We've been about two years now uh, working on very homologation. So trainers will be homologated based on their accuracy. Are you
1: working with a specific scientific group to create this algorithm? University. University. Testing rig. Testing machine. Can you tell me which university? You can't. Okay. Well, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. All right. One, one last question. You've been, you've been really great. And Michael. sorry,
3: just before I go on, but also the wireless platform, the wireless communication protocols.
1: Okay. The M plus and the Bluetooth. They've,
3: they've all been hacked, and okay. uh, we're not aware in the in the wild, but we are. We hacked them, um, and we've, we've got some exciting news there to lock that down.
0: Interested. A couple of things. I mean, first of all, we you know we know your articles come out there, so you you certainly dug a little bit deeper, Chris. But it's interesting how he was keen to get across the wireless protocols himself. You know, he, he almost stopped you from moving on to get that out there. And it, did he mention the word patent there as well on a on a communication protocol? Is that what I heard?
1: I didn't hear him say that. And I'll just, I'll just let you know where I, I took this from here. So he wouldn't tell me the university, but I did some research and it, it, it didn't take a, uh, an investigator to find this. It was pretty easy to find, but I, I tracked them down and they, they did an interview with me. So I interviewed the, the head of the sports engineering department at Purdue, who is a world-renowned sports equipment homologation expert. Like he uh, set up the protocols for that and then he, he, he kind of like transitioned into cycling and that's how he got hooked up with the UCI. So they created this machine that you know puts out power accurately and you, you basically test every single trainer that's out. In addition, they were very keen to let me know that we're, we're doing this with wireless communication protocols also. And basically what they're, they're able to do is they're able to encrypt them and give them a signature and make them almost impossible to manipulate. So they, they know where it's coming from and they, they know that if, if anybody's tried to mess with it, that's very encouraging to hear. But since that article has come out and, you know, it, it was actually featured by, um, GP Lama in his last video, and there's a lot of speculation as to what it's going to do to the market. You know, it's really kind of, you know, I didn't really consider that. Like I, I mentioned to the, to the guys in Purdue, I'm like, you know, this is going to disrupt the trainer market. And he basically said to me, we are not the trainer police. We are going to get these units and we're going to test them. And that's all we have to do with it. The UCI can deal with the rest, right? <laughs> um, they didn't want they're not communicating with the with the companies, they're just doing their job. And I think that if if they if they could, they would do it all anonymously, but you can't you can't hide that what a trainer looks like. They're all pretty distinctive, right? I think that it's going to take the sport where it needs to be. Because I don't know if you saw that that research paper that came out recently, Zach, but they did um some research on, on three trainers and it, it seemed like they were testing low end trainers. And I know that uh that that Shane Miller made some inferences about the trainers that they use which i kind of didn't necessarily see how he could make those connections but they were way off like one of them was reading like a hundred percent off for for resistance you know the fact that we're we're trying to have a legitimate sport with a trainers and manufacturers that are doing things totally differently and trying to create something that that's a level playing field is almost impossible so having a certification for this is a huge step forward if it's something that can be done the right way and not, you know, make a certified trainer costs $3,000 more than, than a non-certified trainer.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm immediately thinking, I've just looked behind me and my bike's got a UCI approved frame sticker on it, you know. So I'm just wondering, are we going to start to see the same things on a on a turbo trainer? Is, is, that, is that music to your ears?
2: It's, uh, oh, how do I put this? It's concerning and promising at the same time. <laughs> I, I'm not really sure. Where it's going in the short term, I think. I think long term, I have a lot of confidence that it'll all get figured out. The trainers will be more accurate. There'll be less cheating and all that. I just, I don't know how quickly that can all happen in the next few months, um, especially with the trainer market and getting. I mean, uh, what what I think about is that first round of UCI approved trainers, the very first one where people kind of know what this means, but they're not really sure if those trainers are the ones that are required for Zwift Grand Prix, or they're required for the MyWish Sunday Race Club, uh, it's going to be a really interesting (laughs) conversation with uh, the people that are going to spend the money to get a brand new UCI approved here and what that really means. And if it's worth it. And it's, uh, it's very interesting (sighs) to think about it. I I have a lot of confidence long-term, but short-term, I don't know what that'll be like.
0: It, it it's a valid point. I mean, the the turbo trainer market as last year has been really struggling, like the whole of the cycling industry. Maybe this is just the boost that they need to take another perspective. I don't know, but uh, no, I think I think it's a it's a fair point. And you know, I would say. Uh, trying to understand, I mean, we're not too far away, are we? October's going to come around pretty quickly. The qualifiers are going to come round even quicker than that. I think we're going to be looking even August, September time for those. So if, if these have to be in place, that'd be interesting, Chris.
1: Well, what they did tell me, actually, they didn't tell me, but what I found out through, uh, for, through some back channels is that they're trying to get every single trainer that's going to be used on the stage for the World Championships to be homologated. So whether that happens or not remains to be seen. But you know that's a step forward, also. Um, so I think that we have, I think we have one more question here with Michael Rogers, and this is a, a pretty interesting question, and he had a very interesting answer. Yeah. Uh, when, when the final racer crosses the line in 2026, mm. what will define success for cycling esports and the decision to partner with MyWish?
3: I think an event that's that we can kind of remember right is is there's been a lot of participation i think we've seen our our people i think from the public have a pathway to get through the fun now whether a a person from the general public can line up against the best athletes in the world you know the future will tell us but i think if we have the best athletes in the room competing each other it looks great. It's it's a great production. It's great. And, and there's whether it's a thousand or a million people watching it, I don't know. But I think if we can get those main elements and, and have a successful, well-broadcast event right, that is written about and is maybe televised and watched, I think we can be happy with that. Yeah. Well, I'll write about it. You yeah? Can, yeah, you okay. can be sure of that. Thank <laughs> you very much. You've been great. fabulous. Thank-
1: yeah, absolutely. It's a great interview, Chris. How, how did you feel on that last question, Chris? Um, d- there really wasn't a lot there. A memorable event, I think they were all asking for that. A million people or no people watching, um, we could probably agree on somewhere in the middle. I think that that question he could probably uh, give a lot more thought to and then answer that to me again because in my mind that's basically the way that you made the decision to go with my wish in the first place right you're you're looking towards the long term you said that to us in the previous question or the question before i was hoping for something a little bit more satisfying out of that answer but we were they were also uh turning off the lights
0: yeah absolutely well it'd be interesting to to get the response from the the head of the uci with david lapontiere of course because this is your your next interview Did
1: you, you did interview david afterwards right no actually I interviewed David first, so yeah i went to i went to to uh, Michael Rogers afterwards, and that's why they were called like like these guys were in the bus, and I was like running to catch it um so <laughs> yeah they uh was no so i I interviewed David Lapartien first and it it might actually be better to frame it the way that we're framing it now because many of his answers were almost. The exact opposite of what, what Michael Rogers said. So, the, the first one I, I asked the same exact question of Michael What is your vision for cycling esports? And this is what David Lapartien, the president of the UCI, told me. Uh, what is your vision for cycling esports? And do you see as a unique discipline that will stand alone with the popularity of the
4: other disciplines? It's not completely a standalone because I, I believe it's clearly a bridge. With all the all the disciplines and and um, and really a way to uh, first of all enlarge cycling everywhere and more specifically in big cities where it's quite challenging to, to ride, also for new audiences, more women to come on the, on the different platforms, uh, and my wish is the perfect uh, the perfect thing for that. We for the UCI it's also a way to really detect some very talented riders. You can see some of them not at all coming from the. Uh, normal club environment normal way you know and to detect through the national federations we can see some very talented riders on on different platforms and it's a way maybe to protect them to bring them to to uh, to all the disciplines uh, to road cycling but not not uh, not only mountain bike uh, and all the disciplines so um clearly uh, this discipline is a discipline in itself uh, with. The uh, dedicated uh, UCI Cycling Esports World Championships, with probably uh, part of the uh, Olympic uh, Esports Games, so that's in a way kind of standalone uh, for the UCI World Championships, but clearly a bridge with all the disciplines. Uh, so it's it's a mixed uh, in between uh, in between both.
1: So then, if I understand you correctly, then you don't see uh, like an esports specialist athlete cyclist.
4: Oh, yes, we, we can have. Uh, look at the, the first guy to, to win the World Championship in 2020. It was a, war, a roaring guy. Yeah, Jason Hasbro. Uh, yes. So yes. it was not coming from cycling. Mm. So And some of them are really only in uh, in uh, riding or, or doing competition on, uh, on e-cycling. So I, I think at the date of today, but who knows exactly what will be the situation in 10 years' time? Maybe we're completely specialists of this discipline. Uh, maybe, and it will be interesting to see, uh, for example, a guy like Tadej Pugachar in the next, uh, UCI, uh, cycling esports world championship here in Abu Dhabi, with uh, I would say fighting or riding against, uh, pure specialists of cycling esports, and, and to see, uh, uh, where they will be, in fact, uh, and also probably some, some use, some, some track riders, you know, as you know, so on 15k mm-hmm. can be also very strong. So, uh, yes, we can have really specialists of cycling e-sports. Uh, we have specialists of road, but probably also riders able to do, uh, to do both Like We have riders like cyclocross is a standalone discipline, but the world champion is the same as one for the road. So I think riders will, for some of them will specialize, but for some others will, will do, uh, will do both also because, um, they they see this as uh, also a way to have specific training uh, for some athletes. So, uh, you remember during the COVID time, or um, Ayman, when he won, uh, for example, Paris-Roubaix, when he had, I think it it was a broken Exactly. and he had to train on the the platform, Mm -hmm. and and then he came back and and he he won. So, yes, I I think a lot of bridges and, and so more opportunities.
1: Great, thank you for that.
4: I've got so
0: many mixed feelings about that clip. I am also thinking of Chrissy's face when when he first
1: responds and says, "No, I don't see it as a unique discipline, Chris." <laughs> no, it was like I was like, "Oh jeez." I I I got the sense when he was ask, answering that question that he wasn't like answering it to me. He was answering it to, to the guys that were on the stage that we just, uh, you know, just had the press conference with, right? He, he, because one of the big things that they did there was they signed the contracts for all the the, yeah. the different events that are coming up uh, in the UAE, right? And and that that question wasn't for a, a, an esports cycling journalist. That was for for somebody else. Um, but he you know he did make the point of the crossover athlete, which you know Sai you've made uh, several times, and it, you know, that could make it really exciting if there was a a road racer who also crossed over to you know to esports. And he mentioned, you know, they, it was kind of like a, a joke when they, they turned to Tade, uh, Zach, if you remember, and said, Are you going to, you, you know, maybe you'll jump into the esports world championships. But I don't really see an upside for, for somebody like Tade, right? Because if he jumps into the esports world championships and he wins, then what do people say? Oh, you were supposed to win. You know, you're the best cyclist in the world. But what if he gets beat? And then what?
2: Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really good point. I think probably what they're, what they're trying to say there, if I if I had to guess, is that they don't want eSports cycling to feel exclusive. I, I think they want road pros or track pros or cyclocross pros to feel like they can jump on eSport and compete. I think what we've seen in maybe the last five ten years, like um, when Peter Sagan, I think he announced he was going to do the mountain bike at the Olympics. I think that was in Rio, and that was – one of those things that it's like, how much of that is PR? How much of that is he actually going to compete? And, and since you, like Matthew Vanderpoel and Tom Pidcock that, I mean, it's hard to say, are they a specialist in one thing or, yeah. I mean, nowadays they're pretty much full-time road guys and then they jump on a mountain bike and they're some of the best in the world. I think the UCI is trying to leave the door open for, road pros or other cycling pros to be able to say, oh, yeah, I could jump on eSport and compete with those guys if I wanted to. I think they're trying to not make it sound like an exclusive club if I had to guess.
0: Yeah, and Chris and I have debated this loads. I, and I also debated it when I went on the show with, with Anna and Nathan, of course, because I've got mixed, mixed feelings about whether we should have pros on there. because I think if we do, I think some of those traditional. and and for me, David Lapontian then came across as a little bit of a traditional road guy, you know, in, in a way, and he, in his views, you know, that he didn't see it as a as an individual discipline. But then he mentions, you know, the the, the cyclocross towards the end, you know, and, and ties that in with the with Mathieu van der Poel you know, as a road rider winning that discipline. I I think that if we saw some of those road pros take place, take part in the cycling eSports, I do think it would help to shush some of those people who it does have a question mark. I'm not saying they have to win, but I think having them next to them, and that also comes back to that comment earlier about gamification versus tactics, because I think the issue is when we've had too much gamification, those guys have struggled because of the gamification in some ways. You know, whereas my wish doesn't have that same level of... Zach, you know, as I... Well, you could turn up to a Roche Sunday race club right now if you've got the watts and you can can compete because the drafting is not where it probably needs to be. You don't need a massive amount of skill because you'll yo-yo anyway, regardless of what you do. You know you can, you can survive. So for me, for me, that's an interesting one. It'd be interesting to see how that that develops. I still believe that if we had some road pro road pros line or poor mountain bike pros or cyclocross pros or track pros, because he mentioned track as well then I think, you know, that, that could also, you know, help for sure. So, all right, let's get on because I know
1: time is uh, of an essence because we, this is going to be a long podcast today. Well, let's get on to the next clip, Chris. Right, this next question, uh, I did not expect to get the answer that I got. Now, you mentioned uh, numerous times about your um, involvement in the IOC eSports yes. Commission. Now, is, Olympic eS- is cycling eSports receiving serious consideration as a medal sport in the Olympics?
4: Uh, in, in the Olympics, at the date of today, there were some questions, even from the IOC and the IOC president. Do we have to introduce some um, e-sports disciplines or at least physical, virtual sports discipline within the Olympic program or not? At the date of today, the, the choice of the IOC is more to have dedicated um, Olympic e-sports games. And that means that the, the gaming the sports simulation or the physical virtual activities will be part of this um, Olympic eSports Games and not directly of the uh, of the Olympic Games. So that's the situation at the date of, of today. Of course, what could be the situation in 10 years, it's so disrupting in this world in a period of time, but it will start from 2025 and at, at the date of today, and it's clear, in, in 20, we, we don't discuss about 2028, 20, having, uh, you know, uh, uh, cycling esports within the uh, the program but of course uh, in the uh, in the uh, olympic esports games yes
1: now do you think that the sport of cycling esports needs that designation to be viable like do we need that to go forward for this for, for the sport to
4: sustain itself you know we have a strong sport uh, it, so the, the sport cycling in itself can survive uh, without esports uh but I really see this as a, as a kind of way to, to really enlarge our audience. Uh, you have a lot of riders riding every day on, the, on, on, on this platform. Uh, but also giving more opportunities to have physical activities. Uh, if you take, uh, you no know, uh, two weeks ago we, have, we had ice on the road in Brittany. Uh, it was impossible for me to go outside. I was on the platform. So, Great. you know, uh, it's also another way to continue to, to do some, some activities uh, when the weather, when it's dark, when you are, li- you know, if you are living in London, in Hong Kong, in Paris, it's uh, quite challenging to go to ride in with time. And so it's a way to exercise also. So it's good for the health. It's a, it, it has to be seen as a, yes, as an, something more, in addition to. Right. You guys
1: probably know, I've been chasing this story for a year, right? This whole Olympics thing, because I think that it would be really exciting for the sport and it's it would be a game changer for the sport. So when he told me that, my jaw dropped, right? As, as a, like the, you know... I'm pretty passionate about this stuff, and I'm trying to uh, make a name for myself in this uh, the freelance writing scene, right? So to be able to tell the world, you know, the, the first information about cycling esports being in the Olympics was pretty exciting to me. So there were a couple of things there that he said, which were significant. First of all, all the reporting prior to that was that if there was going to be an Olympic esports games, it wasn't going to be until 2026. So he said clearly it would be in 2025, which contradicted all the previous reporting. But then the other thing that he mentioned was we don't speak about 2028 in L.A. When he said that, he was kind of try, was trying to say it, but not say it. And my sources tell me that, you know, that you know, we're going to have cycling esports in the Olympic esports series. And from what I understand, I think it might be in Japan, Zach. So you got to get ready for that. That's not confirmed, by the way. But it's going to be in 2025 um, standalone games but that doesn't preclude cycling esports from being on the olympic program in 2028 and my sources tell me that there's a very good chance that that could still happen oh, i think that sounds really
0: exciting and promising obviously zach you were you were part of the first one and, and no doubt you were already thinking about the the mention of 2025 i just did you hear anything about that because obviously you were a well, i'd say a contestant there or contestant what's, what's the right word a participant in the 2023 olympic esports week had you was that a question that you'd asked or do you got any information on that Zach
2: we had people from the IOC from the UCI and also from Zoot, and I remember that question being asked and at that time no one had any news no one had any updates they couldn't couldn't make any promises if it was a one and done or if it would come back every year for the next 20 years um, obviously they were hoping it would be a success and it would come back every year but at the time, I haven't heard any updates on that, but it was definitely discussed.
0: Well, it sounds like we're definitely having this transition year of, of nothing happening in 2024 at that level, because we're, we're obviously we've got the new worlds coming, but uh, it sounds pretty exciting for, for 2025. And, and Chris, maybe we, we can uh, do a quick tour of venues while we're in L.A. together as well in a couple of weeks for the for the possible 2028. But uh, it'd be interesting also, I think, because there was quite a mixed number of sports in that 2023 Olympic week from chess to taekwondo and and all sorts, so it'd be interesting to see how that develops as we head towards twenty twenty five. And I'm sure Chris, you'll have your finger on the pulse, and it sounds like you've already got your sources uh, lined up. I guess the next question is, you know, do we depend on having Olympic status as a sport?
1: I'm going to let Zach at- answer this one. I, I have some ideas. I want from the racers' perspective.
2: I don't think esports cycling absolutely needs the Olympic status. I think. I think if you want to reach that next level where it is a, a global super sport, something like, oh, I don't even know, soccer or car racing or something like that, that those sports are on another level. I mean, the the professional teams and the professional series that those sports run are, are worldwide. They're flying all over the place to compete every single year. But I think there's so many sports that that do well just in their niche in their in their home country in their home continent or just virtually. I think you can have a very healthy and sustainable sport without that Olympic status. I think with the amount of money in esports cycling right now and the development and the long-term commitment in the next, next three plus years, I think it's it's in a, esports cycling is in a good place right now for sure.
1: Yeah. So I've asked that question of the head of Belgian cycling the head of uh, cycling canada the head of or uh, cycling the head of usa cycling and every single one of them have used the words it would be a game changer for us and it's mainly because they receive the majority of their funding from their their nations olympic committees so they would get and they want medals right they that, that's that's what they're that they're in the medal business so the fact that the sport would be able to produce medals and get eyes on the sport and you know it allows them to invest in it and to to dump resources into the national governing bodies. So they basically said, if it it gets into the Olympics, then that changes everything for us. It allows us to actually pay attention to it.
2: I think as a, as a side note to that, it just got me thinking as an, as an e-sport, I wonder if, if we had a million dollars or whatever in the U S to put towards e-sport cycling, what would we do with that money? Because with, with so many other sports, if you know, in-person coaching and training facilities and, and all that, would, would, we, would we move all of our esports cyclists to the same place to train together? Because right now everyone's at home doing their own thing and then they race virtually online. I, I wonder if you gave a ton of funding to a nation, where would that funding go? Because
1: everyone right now is just kind of training at home. Yeah it's interesting. I know that I'm I'm currently doing some research on the, the the other national governing bodies that have, you know, really solid, you know, esports committees. They're doing these live events and they're they're getting all people and you know, they're getting a bunch of crowds and they're they're doing all these things to really promote the sport in in their countries. Like that's the way that I would like to see. If we're talking about accessibility, then you know, do some remote events, get the US national team there, get some hype around it. Get people doing this, get more young, you know, get some youth development wrapped around the fact that I want to be the next next Zach Nair. You know what I mean? Elevate you guys, put some put some money behind promoting you and promoting the you know the face of, of esports. You know, Brian Duffy, you know, we wanna we wanna ride like Brian Duffy and we we can we can do this and do that. You know, that's the way that I could see the, that investment really being utilized in a way that would be, you know, you know, transformative for the sport. It's it's a really tricky one, isn't it? Because you know, I, I saw some of the video
0: clips, and uh, you know, I've seen some of the the live events. It's like you said, there, Chris, the national governing body has done. We you know, we both saw the videos and spoke to the guys who would organised the French national championships, cycling sports championships. The Danish ones took place recently, and they were like absolutely mega events. But then there is that question, you know. Chris and I have also both spoken to people at Zwift, and they continually talk about the accessibility. You know, the reason why they do it at home is because that's what it's based around. The whole industry of indoor cycling, you know, is about being accessible at home. But, yeah, so I, I don't know where to sit on that one. I, you know, for me, the live events that I've attended, I've attended a few now, have been mega experiences, you know, and, and it was, my, the hair stood up on the, back of my end, on the back of my arms when I, you know, watched you, at at that Olympic event. You know, it was a, a monumental moment, but also it's got to be exciting. I think we've got to find the balance of those two, those two things, you know, the, the qualification aspects at home, but also having those live venues for the finalists, not just from an experience point of view, you know, with the crowds and and the sort of the stories that you can build, um, you know, but also the validation that we spoke about earlier, I think, is is a really critical part. But I think you also asked David Lapontien, right, about the viability of, of of esports and whether it's dependent on uh, Olympic status. Chris,
1: yeah, I did, and you know, after that, I was trying to like set up some questions as to why they're moving into a non traditional region of cycling, a region where there's not a lot of cycling history and try to get an idea of what his motivations were because, you know, when they awarded the UCI world championships to my wish, there were a lot of people who basically said that they, that my wish paid for it. So I wanted to get an idea of what he would say when I asked that question and then use that as a way to set up um, my next question. So here it is. Abu Dhabi will host the road worlds in 28 and the track worlds in 29. And obviously the Esport world championships yeah. is going to be on my wish. So it, you've confirmed your belief in UAE as their status as a, yeah. a global power in sports. What factors do you consider when bringing the sport to non-traditional regions of the world?
4: Oh, there are many, in fact. Uh, first of all, we believe that for the UCI and for cycling, it's also good because we are the International Cycling Union. That means that we we, we must be also worldwide. Our routes, very solid routes, are in Europe. We know that. But for us to be... Uh, one day back in south america to be in africa in 2025 to be here in the middle east it's really key and ue they are really building a, a cycling environment it's just not about having a, a world team it's about having infrastructure it's about having uh, venues equipment the velodrome here uh, and and people are riding a bike uh, that that's a reality and and for us it's good to be uh, to be here they have also an expertise to organize a lot of uh, top-class uh, uh, events, uh, of course, in different disciplines, different sports, uh, but cycling is, uh, uh, is perfect for that. Um, and also, uh, because we, we also see here um, the, the opportunity maybe to have another kind of circuit of the one we uh, will have for the next four years. We have very demanding, very difficult circuits for the next four years. This one will be quite different, and probably also an opportunity for a top sprinter to be world champion. And at the UCR, we have also, and I'm very careful about that, having different type of circuit in order for the for different athletes to be uh, to be world champion. So that's what we have in uh, in mind. And uh, here, you know, they are able to deliver a, a world class world class event. So that's uh, for us a strong partner. Great,
1: thank you very thank much, you. sir. Thank
4: Chris. you. very Appreciate much. It. Thanks a lot. Okay. So
1: That's a
0: a really interesting couple of things we can pull out there, and it's going to lead on to some interesting questions to follow up, I guess, but I'm going to come on to that in a second. But I I think it's important to highlight, obviously, the way that the UCI structure the World Championships these days has changed. You know, and I was lucky enough this year, no, not this year, last year to go to the UCI World Champs up in glasgow here in the uk for example because of course we get all the events now at the same time and and roughly the same place so we had the track taking place the mountain bike you know the the e-bike stuff and the grand fondos that i was involved in and 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 the road worlds for example through all the age groups and so on and i think you know if i look at the uh, he mentioned the next four years but zurich this year aren't we rwanda you mentioned Africa there, twenty twenty five, Montreal, I think twenty six, France, back in France for twenty seven, then Abu Dhabi is twenty twenty eight for those world championships. So they'll see, you know, there's a few developing countries in there in some respects, and some non traditional cycling countries in there at the same time. And you know, I, I quite like his answer about, you know, the varied courses as well. No, we don't want to see the same riders winning on the same sorts of courses year in, year out, year out when it comes to Worlds as well. So I, I didn't mind his answer that point of view. Inevitably, Chris, this is going to lead on to some questions you know, that we've already had in the last couple of months as we started to talk about My Wish in the UAE, about, about sports washing. So I think that's the last question that David LaPontille answered. But uh, yes, yeah, so what, what did happen at the
1: end of that interview? So so Zach, I, I, I'm pretty sure that you, uh, that you witnessed this when, when you interviewed him, but his press secretary was standing right beside us. So besides being extremely stressful, it was a little bit constricting. So prior to that last question, he said, no more questions. And I was about to ask what would have been a very interesting question to kind of get at the sports washing issue in a different way. So I was planning on asking him, when you enter non-traditional cycling regions that lack a historical presence in the sport, how does the UCI distinguish between investments by the host country in public image versus sports infrastructure? <laughs> so basically what I was hoping to get an answer to is it's, it's something that I've kind of really been struggling with, Zach, and I don't know if, if you have also since we were there, is you know we were able to see a lot of things, but there are, are a lot of people that criticize what we've done and, and the reporting that we've done. Because it's seen as if we're supporting a nation that basically is run on oil money, that has a very questionable human rights record, that conceivably, perceptually is investing in all these different sports just because they like shiny things and it basically distracts from the atrocities that are going on in their countries. I don't know if if you've been faced with that also and, and what you've done or or how you've thought of it in your own mind.
2: Yeah, I I don't have a ton to add, but I think it's important to say that with everything I've experienced with my whoosh in Abu Dhabi, there was never anything that I was never restricted from anything. There was, there was nothing that I couldn't ask. There was nothing that I couldn't see. It was, it was all, I got, I got to experience the country and I got to experience the people and I got to share and write about all the experiences that I had. There was, there was, was really too bothersome to me. And I, I think it was, it was good to see that it wasn't all taught with, the money and with the promises, it was it was my a very legitimate company and they're and they're doing all the right things in my mind to push esports cycling to the next level. They're fully invested in the sport, and you can see that from the amount of money. But they have the people behind that to back it up.
1: Yeah, that's that's a very interesting point because. I've mentioned this in the past that all the money in the world is not going to buy you a philosophy it's not going to buy you the people that are going to have the right ideas and implement the right ideas, so I, I think that that's really significant to say that you know there are people there that have the the best interests of the sport in mind in my opinion
2: I agree with, I think seeing and meeting the my wish people there they have people that have been in cycling for decades that really understand the sport and they understand why people love cycling and what they love about it. And they're trying to translate that into the my and into the racing and into the training experience. And it's, it's, it's not all people that are just doing it to do a job. It's people that love cycling and they want to bring cycling to more. I think that was, that was really important to see for a huge e-cycling platform that, in some ways is is taking over the e-sport cycling space by taking the world championships for the next few years. They're really taking the lead in terms
1: of the, the high-level racing. Just to wrap up, I just want to make it clear that there is no excuse for human rights violations. There is no excuse for the oppression of women. There is no excuse for atrocities that occur in a country. That's not some, That's not what I'm doing. All I'm doing is letting people know that there were things that I saw, and you really can't ignore the, the things that you see. Sai. So this has been a really, really long podcast. So <laughs> it, maybe, maybe you can wrap it up and uh, let let the people know what we're planning for the next one. And and th- and thank you, Zach. Thank you. You've been great.
2: Yeah. Of course. Thank you guys so much for having me on today. This has been great.
0: No, absolutely. First and foremost, th- yeah. Thanks, Zach, for coming on to the show and and being so open with us. And it's it's great, as I said, to get the insight from. Uh, from a racer at the sharp end on multiple platforms as well so it's great you know and and like I say I think we've we've dove deep on quite a few topics there covering those two interviews chris that you got from david lapontia and michael rogers so thank you for that but yes absolutely moving on to the next show this has been a long one the next one will be from long beach in california so i'm really looking forward to that i've got a few hours uh, trip just to go and visit my good friend chris but chris you've also got a few hours to travel to come and meet me too as well so hopefully that evening that first night together is is full of chat and not full of awkward silences but uh it's about time we we talk every day pretty much i would say so it'd be great to meet you face to face and of course not forgetting We have an absolute huge announcement to make while we're there. It's one of the reasons why we're going as well. So huge announcement to make on the next show. That will be episode 38. Um, So that will be coming out. I would guess that'll be out mid-March sometime, second week, third week of March at some point. So keep your ears open to that. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe, share this podcast with whoever listen, friends, family, fellow cycling esports, and we'll see you soon for another virtual Velo podcast.